Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to say that um, we're rewinding today all the way back to the first ever edition of this show and uniting trainer Eve Johnson-Horn and newsboy from the Daily Mirror, David Yates. It's great to see you both. I feel kind of reassured and comfortable in your, in your company. That'll change, I know, well, very quickly. Yeah, I think it's great to be back, isn't it? It's great we're all back in the studio. It's really mm. nice after two years of Zoom and all that rubbish. Exactly. Zoom and all that rubbish. feels reassured and comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, yesterday, you were at Newmarket. How did you enjoy the day? Brilliant day. What a brilliant atmosphere was there, I thought. Loads of people... Um, it was really good to see Newmarket full and it was really nice for once for Newmarket to have an atmosphere and be buzzing. Yeah, and, and no real downside to that atmosphere either. It was it's not as far as I know, I haven't heard anything about it, but um, everyone seemed very happy. There was no, no drunkenness and I mean, you know, everyone was having a really good time. I thought it was brilliant, really good. There was lots of drunkenness, but it was all... I mean, um, think, right, surely in this, in this, when we discuss this, get the people on site get them enjoying themselves and then if there are elements of of mm. anti-social behavior well you deal with those for example with a police presence or whatever it might be but the first thing is to get everyone on site and having and see them having a good time i got to the races quite late yesterday and so i walked in when it was you know, you go the press going from the far end. Anyone who knows mm. Newmarket, so you walk past that the the party area, and it was absolutely buzzing. Mm. It was really vibrant. It was everything that a horse race meeting, I think, should be. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, okay, for those who just want to make their paddock notes and they don't want loud music and people enjoying themselves, of which there are some people. Um, this was a. I, I thought this was a perfect balance yesterday. I thought it was a really, yeah, really good Yeah, I couldn't day. agree more. I went, um, I went and had a walk around the sort of party area just before I went home because I thought I wanted to go and have a look at it and see what it was like. And it was great. Really good atmosphere. There were people there that, that knew about racing and they all went and watched the Guineas, but they sort of didn't watch much of the rest of it. But they were having a great time. They were all betting. They were cheering the runners in. I just, I thought it was a really, really good atmosphere. Did you manage to get out of the party area, or did you? Well, I'm here. Could you? Uh, no, nah, yeah. <laughs> did you stop for a couple of beverages on the way? No, I didn't. I had no. to drive home last no. night. So. You, you had a busy day yesterday. A um, couple of important runners, particularly Jumby, in the in the big handicap. He rather blew his chance at the start again. Well, you can't come from the behind at Newmarket, and he decided to let them all go first, which is quite boring. Uh, and then he actually ran, pretty, you know, finishing sixth. He ran the, well. Top weight yeah. from there. So I think we're going to have to go up to, back up to seven furlongs. Um, I'm just going to pluck him out. He's maroon colours, mm, yeah. about third from the left, just sort of weaving his way through. But the bird's flown by this yeah, stage. Yeah, it's too late it? now. It's too late. And William was very easy on him, um, saving him for another day. So, you know, he's run pretty well from there. He's good, isn't he? He is good. 
He is. He's just annoying because he's probably a seven furlong horse, and there's just not that many seven furlong races. I probably should have run him in the seven furlong handicap the day before. Um, but William rode him before, and he said, "Oh no, six. He's fine over six. Mm. I think he's got the pace for six. He doesn't have the gate speed for six. He, they, he needs them to go very hard yeah. on a stiffish yeah. track, which makes me think: Are oh, you going to run him in the Wokingham? Race 106 is really hard to win off that, isn't it? But what, what else do you know. do then put him in a stakes race? Well, he's in the um, Platinum, Platinum Jubilee, but I think that's probably too good for him. Um, but I think we might go seven furlongs. Okay. Seven furlongs, yeah. All righty. Uh, and uh, Scar Scarlet Dragon. I know, he's a character, <laughs> he, isn't he? He, he is a naughty boy, he is isn't he? He's a character. I mean, he's nine years old. He's been, he was with me for a three-year-old career, and then he went to um, Alan King's where he did exceptionally well with him. And then he obviously was getting a bit of a character of a jump. So Henry said, oh, we'll send him back to you, Eve. And I said, well, shall we see? Shall we see if he really wants to? But actually, you know, considering we have to train him quite tenderly because he has his own ideas about the game, I think he got tired. So we'll give him one more go. And if he really doesn't want to race again, that's it. We'll find a nice home for him. And the yard is in, in really good form. You started the season much as you spent most of last season. Yes, yeah, great. I mean, w it always takes when it's very cold. Ours don't sort of do too well because we live on top of a hill. But um, as soon as the warmer weather comes, we start to get rolling. And uh, the last couple of weeks have been really good. And you had a very nice two-year-old finish second at Ascot the other day. Got inside the final furlong and I thought, well, he's won. Yeah, he just, you know, he was giving three pounds away. And I think he was probably a little bit, I hadn't done anything with him since Bath and possibly just a little bit green. But he's run pretty well, you know, for, um, it didn't cost very much. And he'll give them all a great, great season so you're happy yep you're not quite as happy as um james doyle who was ecstatic yesterday after he had um, secured his first 2000 guineas on caribus banishing all those memories of barney roy and particularly kingman uh, let's enjoy it from the stalls again and there he is over on the far side the white cap and a stable companion on the other flank is native trail in the all royal blue and the first thing to note, I thought, um, Dave, was how well Caribus switched off, even though he was in the least advantageous draw to be able to do so. Yeah, it, it was notable after the race that James Doyle said, you know, it, it, obviously he, he referenced Kingman and, and Barney Roy, and he said that during the early stages, I think he said when I got to the halfway point, I was thinking this has all gone remarkably well so far. And as you say, during the early stages, he... he he switched off. There's, there's an element of gnashing one's teeth with this result because I think a lot of us have spent most of the winter thinking that um, Caribus was th the bet against uh, Native Trail in the Guineas and then after the Craven, a few of us just jumped ship onto the favourite and, and were left frustrated yesterday. But this was a great result for the jockey. Um, I get the impression with James Doyle, and I wouldn't ever claim to know him at all well, but I get the impression that he's somebody who, who doesn't... Uh, plumb the depths emotionally and doesn't have the, the highest of highs either. I think he's quite a, a level, balanced human being but he was in tears afterwards, as you say the, 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 the defeat on Kingman must have been particularly galling in, when was that? 2013? 2014. And um, this, was, this was a wonderful redemption. And after the race, Lydia Hislop caught up with the winning rider and asked him uh, what it meant to him. Yes, um, I think after a half a furlong I was kind of happy. I, it was just one moment where it looked like I could be caught on a wing and he was quite fresh early on, so I was a little bit 
little bit worried, but then no sooner did we go another couple of strides, I, I just had to bring him back slightly just to make sure I could get in. And then he, I mean, I have to say he travelled incredibly, like incredibly strong throughout. So he, there's no reason to believe he won't improve from today because he was quite exuberant through through the early part of the race. I just had to fetch him back a couple of times. And, uh, well, I, I, I was thinking at halfway, this is all going... Uh, pretty pretty well uh, I've talked a good game beforehand how I'd hoped it would unfold and I have to say at halfway I was pretty happy uh, I just thought we'll just keep keep just very patient very patient and uh, I guess around the two there I felt I thought it must have been Ryan because I couldn't see him in front of me and something joined me quite quick and I just asked him a couple of questions sort of going into the dip and Corey responded incredibly and he, uh, he hit the line great didn't he he showed a potent turn of foot and I think it, had Ryan not have joined me, it forced my hand to go a little bit early. I think if, if, if that didn't happen, I, I could have afforded to have been even, even cheekier and he'd have won even more impressive, I think. OK. And in the closing stages, were you aware that it was your friend, Will Buick, and stable companion, Native Trail, that was up beside you? Yes, I did. I could see him to my left and that was no surprise at all. I kind of I felt like saying to Will, before we went out, I'll see you at the other end because I thought that was would be kind of how it would happen. So... Um, it's just amazing how hard it is to win this race. I've, I've ridden some very good horses, Kingman and Barney Roy, hate to mention them, but ridden some, you know, they were as good as their generation at, at that stage. So they, they both fell short by, I, I feel no fault of their own, just victim of circumstances, i.e. draw biases and the, the way the race is unfolded. So like I say, pulling up, and halfway through the race, I just couldn't believe that it actually worked out the way we'd hoped. And like I said beforehand, that's a testament to Charlie's um, belief he kind of has in us guys. You know, he, he, he really does. You know, we, I think we spoke briefly about how we had hoped the race would go. And he just said, look, I understand everything can go wrong. So look, just, you know what you're doing, just ride it as you see fit. And that, that for a jockey going out in a big race like that is, 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 is an incredible feeling that you do have a free reign to, to, to change things up if it does go pear-shaped. Mm. And we saw that you and William came back together. You spent some time together immediately after the race. What were you saying to each other? Can you give us some insight? Well, I, I was a bit emotional actually pulling up because, like I say, I, I just couldn't believe the, the way it had worked out. And, you know, it's been, it's been a tough couple of years um, of riding. Obviously, I've, I've had good opportunities in, in the arc on Hurricane Lane and things like that, but just hasn't hasn't worked out for whatever reason so you know you you have a few a few years on the sidelines a bit and you when you're used to a good you know had a good good time of it of getting to feel these good big winner how it feels to win these big races so I'm getting a bit tongue-tied um and when you don't for a little while it it does frustrate you a little bit and when you do feel it again, it's incredible. And you know, William's a great friend of mine. He, he I, th- I think he would have known that this would have meant a lot. And he, he took time to come up and said, "You deserve that. Well done." You know, he, he sees the the work we both put in in the mornings, and you know, we we've been you know best mates, competitors for a long time now. And um, he, he can sense that I get frustrated when when he you know I, I see him riding all these great horses. He don't get me wrong, he, he's absolute top drawer and. It's incredible to be in the same team and work alongside him, but I can sense that he sensed that I've been a little bit frustrated lately. So, yeah, he's he's a top class, top class man. And whilst he wasn't on board this fella today, I'm sure he will be the next day. <laughs> so, uh, you're giving us a bit of insight. Were you starting to worry that you would never be here after the 2,000 guineas? 
No, not at all. I, I remember. Uh, I remember. It just becomes frustrating. Uh, I remember after Adi won the derby, I just thought, oh Christ, this is so tough to, you know, get on the right one. I remember Charlie rang me afterwards and he said, look, we're, we're just starting to get the hang of this, so <laughs> don't worry, just sit tight. Everything's going to be fine. And look, he's he's just an incredible man to work for, and. Um, it's it's so enjoyable going into Moulton Paddocks four days a week, getting to know these horses and being part of this team. Are your family here today? They are. My mother flew back from America against my sister's wishes, who's who's actually pregnant at the moment. She's due in uh, July, so she didn't want her to come back. But um, my mother said, I'm not missing... Uh, James has got a good chance in the guinea, so I'm not missing it for the world. So she flew back especially a couple of days ago. And have you had a chance to speak to her yet? I have indeed. She was waiting for me just before the prize giving, so yeah, she gave me a big hug. Can you share what she might have said to you, or is that private? She said the same thing, really. She's like, wow, something actually went how you kind of thought it would do. And she's, she's been on the path for me ever since, you know, she's seen the struggles that we've had to go through, and she's been there right, right the way through. She was... She flew to Dubai the night Cityscape won the duty free. That was my first big winner, and she was there. And she met me as soon as I came off the track, and it was the same story today. So it's just great that she she can relate and feel the things that I go through. And um, she's been a great mentor to me throughout my career. But well, it's just tremendous to, to speak to you. I'm so pleased that you're here and you've won your first classic. May there be many more. Well done, James. Thank Thanks, Lee. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, clearly a, a very emotional moment for James Doyle. And there he is with mum Jackie just after the race. She come over from Kentucky to see him ride and wanted to stay. Daughter Sophie doing very well in America. Very, very close family even. It was, it was lovely to see. Yeah, very close. They um, grew up sort of Lambourne area. Um, and I mean, I've known Jackie for years. They're really, really close. She's done very well by both of them. And uh, two fantastic kids and great riders. And he, he's always spoken very well, James Doyle, as well. Yes. But he, I, I get the, the sense he feels things quite quite deeply. I mean, I should imagine. As a lot so, of top sportsmen well, do. Well, but I mean, you do. You have to, you know, you have to just um, suck it up and carry on, don't you? Because otherwise you get nowhere. But I think, he, you know, she's... I think, you know, Jackie trained horses for quite a long time. from, mm. And she, she knows the highs and definitely the lows from it. And so she will have kept him very grounded... And I think it's great for them all to enjoy it as a family. So uh, James Doyle wins the classic, paying tribute to Charlie Appleby, saying that sit tight, we're just getting the hang of things, it'll all come right. And that is exactly uh, what has happened. Charlie joins us on the line now. Morning, Charlie. Good morning, Nick. Uh, I, I think that was your sort of overriding feeling straight after the race, wasn't it? Your your delight for James before we before we talk about a brilliant performance. Yeah, no, most definitely as a, as um. Sure, you've all spoken about there, but uh, you know he's an integral part of the team, and um, you know has been with us uh, as, a, as a as a team member in Moulton Paddocks for the for the last sort of five or six years there now, and um, you know he just shows his 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 class, his, his you know his sportsmanship, and um, you know how professional he is in, in the way he's you know, dealt with being second jockey to to William, and you know we're very lucky, we all get on very well, we all have a lot of banter day in, day out, and, um, you know, he will sit there and, and listen to myself and William talking about, you know, certain festivals and certain horses, and, and he knows he's not going to get on them, but he, he sits there and just, you know, sits and waits for his turn, and when he does it, he doesn't let you down. So, um, you know, it was, it was, it was huge, yes, and delighted for him, and most importantly, like to give him his first classic winner. Very important. Uh, and uh, he made a, an interesting observation there. He said that he, he got frustrated, and you said to him, sit tight, we're just getting the hang of this. What, it, what exactly did you mean by that? 
Well, look, it's just, you know, we, we, we're lucky in the, you know, this year, going into last year, really, as well, you know, when he got very frustrated after the arc, you know, and, and you know, you, you, you hate to see people sort of, you know, not beat themselves up, but get frustrated when, when some things don't happen. And uh, I'm very lucky that position I'm in that I have the, the support of, uh, you know, His, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed and the, and, the, and the team Godolph in there, you know. So when things don't go right, that there's no better man to, to say, don't worry, just keep going, keep trying, keep pushing. And, um, you know, after the art, I could see James was, it was just chewing him up a little bit. And I just said, oh, Jim, don't worry, you know, we're, we're already just getting going. Um, in respect to the numbers of horses that we were, you know, all the cops, so I say that the, the caliber of horses we were having, you know, we weren't just having the one runner uh, at a festival meeting, a one runner, one runner in a derby, or a, you know, a one runner in a guineas, or, or any of those group one or group group events. Um, you know, thankfully the numbers were, were getting stronger, and, and therefore, you know, the opportunities for James to get on these horses was, was getting stronger as well. So, um, you know, we, we often see it in Dubai. We always we, we run plenty out there, and there's always, you know, two in a race, but. Um, I was confident going into this year that we'd be double-handed in, in hopefully, you know, some of the, you know, the major festival meetings. I've just listened back to an interview we did last autumn when you, even though Native Trail was an unbeaten Group 1 winning two-year-old, you said you'd always felt Caribus might have the most natural talent. I think we'd all forgotten it by the time uh, we turned up yesterday because Native Trail has had his, his trial and Caribus hadn't. Heart on, hand on heart, what were you actually expecting going into yesterday's race? To be honest, I mean, as we said there before, you know, Native Trail has done what he's, what he's done. Um, you know, he's champion two-year-old, unbeaten, won a Craven, you know, and William could not get off that horse. And, and, and you know, when we galloped, um, when we galloped Caribus uh, the morning of the Craven, you know, William got off of him and uh, said, Charlie, if you hadn't got Native Trail in the race, you just you wouldn't be any happier to ride a horse like Caribus in the Guineas. You'd be delighted he's a guineas ride. Um, personally, what myself and the team had, had seen at home, we, we didn't put the two of them together, um, probably because we don't, didn't want to sort of ruin our sort of um, potential dreams and aspirations for the horse. But, you know, two different types of horses, really. I mean, one was a home bed, and therefore, you know, the Dubawis, you know, we feel that we've got um, we've got the, the strongest handle on, on, on what a Dubawi should look like and what a Dubawi should be able to do. Um, so that was always going to be a you know a plus side to him and for us. Um, but Native Trail, I mean, he just goes out there and, and wears his uh, heart on his sleeve, and, and and he just never gives up. And um, but Caribus, he had that sign. He showed signs very much in the early part of his two-year-old career that he had a lot of natural pace for a horse that you know for the size of him. You know, he he's a, he's a big lad. Um, you know, and I, I showed him to. Some of the team there last year, and you could run this horse in May if we really wanted to. I said, not, not that we'd have a dreamt of doing it, but I said he's that, he's got that much natural pace. Um, but we left him thankfully to, to develop, and 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 he's, you know, we're now you know, benefiting from those uh, for giving him that time. Yeah, and clearly, as you say, with his pedigree and the fact that he is a Godolphin homebred, his victory is even more significant as regards his his stallion prospect. You mentioned that he would now head to the St James's Palace Stakes at Royal Ascot. And that Native Trail would head to the to the Irish Guineas. How challenging is it then going to be to, to plot different paths with them through the campaign, or will they inevitably have to meet one another again? I thought the, the big question is on on everybody's sort of minds: is, is at what stage do you, do we the, the discussions come into play of of which horse do we decide potentially to step off in trip? Um, 
you know, you, there, there, there's arguments and discussions to be made, really, on, on both um, pedigrees, really, uh, of they could go a mile and a quarter, maybe beyond. I personally wouldn't see them going beyond a mile and a quarter myself, but um, the, I think that mile and a quarter option could, could quite easily come into, uh, come into play, you know, come sort of mid-summer. But now you've got sort of Caribus beautifully settled as you as you did yesterday, and you look in, in in his pedigree in a relation of Thunder Snow and some wonderful horses that could often have campaigned out of a Teofilo mare who often imparts stamina. It's that Dubawi Galileo sort of cross again. You'd think that he's actually bred to go a mile and a quarter, standing on his head, and the way he ran through the line yesterday certainly suggests he might. No, that's right, and, and most importantly, like I say he, he's learned to settle because um, you know we, we all saw what he what he did in the Royal Lodge. Um, you know he he. he he travelled particularly well, but you know when he was given the signal, it, it was it was electric, and 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 therefore he he folded the last hundred yards, and that was a combination of yeah he did it a slightly the wrong way round, but also it was just immaturity the first time he's been out in front for as long as that. Um, but you know William rode him in the autumn stakes, and after that, and and it was very much uh, a case of you know we didn't mind getting beat in the Royal Lodge because we learnt so much about a horse that we felt. You know, group ones are going to be hopefully his future anyway, and and, and I'd rather learn how to uh, how, how to manage the horse before we get to that level, uh, and and we learned that um, in abundance. So, um, you know, he's wintered well, and and James, uh, Jason Tate rides him. He's done a great job with him, and uh, you know, the way he's uh, he didn't over race, but he you know like I say he's a strong traveller through there, uh, like any you know any any good horses that that they're. They get that trip because they travel within themselves so easily. So, like I say, a minor court, I don't see a minor quarter being a problem to him later on in, 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 in the year. Uh, and somebody said to me yesterday, Charlie, oh, James Doyle seems to get on so well with this horse. Will Charlie Appleby leave him on it? And I said, well, no, William Buick's the, the first jockey. It's a, it's a fairly simple hierarchy in the, uh, on that basis, isn't it? Yes, very much. I mean, and, and that's, but, but that's why it, we, it's a nice, clean situation that, we, you know, that we, we sit in every morning because everybody knows that position. There's, no, there's none of that sort of greyness, you know, am I going to be on him, am I not going to be on him? Um, and that's why William and James are such an important part of the team in the, the way they get on with one another. Um, you know, James knows that he's you know, potentially not going to ride him next time. And, you know, and James won't worry, he'll get on the next one next week in one of the trials, hopefully trying to find his ride for a derby. Um, and, and, you know, whether he finds one that William's going to ride in a derby trial or vice versa, it doesn't worry the guys. They're just uh, they're two great, um, great sports and great jockeys, and we're very lucky to have them in the operation um, being part of our team. Charlie, you've had a, a great weekend. Um, I know you, you said draw a line through your beer, he'll head to the man of war. Is he all right, though, after that defeat in the jockey club stakes? Yeah, no, he's 100%. So, yeah, no, he's... <laughs> Uh, he, as always, he uh, he went straight to his food pot there, and I um, bet he did. Yeah. He will uh, he will head uh, fly out on Saturday uh, out to out to Belmont and um, yeah, spend a week there, and um, yeah, it'd be certainly um, looking forward to getting him back on uh, on those American tracks. Uh, who is the Godolphin Clubhouse leader as regards the the Derby at the moment? Do you think? Uh, I'm not trying to stand. I'm going to sit on the fence. To don't see it. But this week will be an interesting week. We have New London running in the Vars, um, and and uh, Walker Stars heading to uh, to Lingfield um, on Saturday. You know, those are two horses. I think we haven't that they're untapped potential still. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nahani, you can't take it away from him. I know you know he might not have been an impressive victory uh, at Epsom, but that was dropping back from a mile and a half to to the ten furlongs. 
and we saw what how much improvement there was yeah. with him being over the mile and a half. So, you know, he's a he's a son of Frankel, and uh, we know what uh, you know, his stats are now becoming over those uh, mile and a half races. So, um, you know, I think they're three three exciting horses, and uh, I say two of them are sort of very much Dubawis with with untapped potential as we stand. What about the horse we saw winning the the Newmarket Stakes on on Friday, who's currently not in the Derby? You'd need to you'd need to supplement him. Is that a possibility? Um, it, it, it's been muted, but again, we just thought we'd let we'd see how the, these trials pan out this week. You know, there's we contemplated whether he might look towards more of a French Derby. To be honest with you, um, uh, I'm not saying he won't get the mile and a half. I mean, he you know, galloped out strongly there over the mile and a quarter at Newmarket. Um, but again, he's got a lot of natural pace. He's got the experience to mm-hmm. to, to be able to utilise um, France. So again, it, it will come up for discussion once we've really sort of got to the got to next weekend. Really. All right, that's Nation's Pride, and all well with Hurricane Lane and Adar still on target for the the races that we discussed earlier in the year, the Hardwick and the Coronation Cup. Yeah, very much so. Um, Adar, like I say, been ticking every box there, and uh, plan is to go straight to the Coronation with him. Um, I'll probably take him for a race course gallop over the next couple of weeks there. Um, and, and Hurricane Lane, as I mentioned to you last time, you know he was always just those sort of six weeks behind uh, Adiar in his in his program. Um, but now he's up into a to a full uh, full program now. And um, yeah, he, he he's he's bursting with uh, with health and uh, yeah uh, well-being, should we say? So uh, he's keeping the team on their toes and uh, looking forward to, like I say, him starting to uh, extend his exercise. And uh, hopefully we can get some. Uh, Get him focusing in the right direction again. And just finally, Charlie, can you win another classic this afternoon with Wild Beauty? Look, she's a, uh, a filly that um, she goes in there with, I think, some, some good credentials for to be a classic uh, contender. Um, you know, she's she's well, she, she, she's got the experience under her belt, should we say. Um, the quick ground won't worry me this afternoon. Uh, I thought she put up a brave performance there in the Fred Darling and, and on a trip that we knew was going to be on the sharper side for us. So stepping back up to the mile, um, as we know, thankfully, they're, they're in rude health. Um, she looks great. She looked great midweek there when she just done a piece of work there with um, with the Moonlight, who runs in the Pretty Polly uh, in an earlier race. So uh, we'll get a little bit of an indication from there, but um, it wouldn't worry me um, where she is because this, this, this filly herself, is, uh, she looks great. And, um, you know, I think she should be a big player. Really pleased to welcome Gemma Waterhouse once again to the to the show, the Chief Operating Officer uh, of Racing Welfare. Um, Gemma, good morning. Morning. Um, we normally reserve a little time to chat when there is a, a very important racing welfare fundraising initiative in the offing. Um, you've got your cycling gear on again, and as have uh, some high-profile personalities in the sport. Absolutely. We're um, so lucky to have a really long list, actually, of people um, joining us. So we've got Khadija Mella, Vanessa Ryle, Hayley Moore, Rosie Tapner, AP McCoy, Reese Flint, Sheen Murphy, Luke Harvey, Sean Boyce, Ben Pauling's putting two teams in for this, and Charlie Post is returning again for a second year. So... Um, a really good uh, stellar cast of names that people can come along and cycle with. You can cycle belong beside uh, AP McCoy, try and beat him up Cleve Hill. Probably quite uh, easy because I'm not sure how much training he's actually done yet. Uh, it should it should just be stressed that this is this is not 
a straightforward endeavour. It's very easy for you to get involved in it, but you know, we want to let everybody know just how much kind of training and effort and passion that so many people in the, in the industry are putting in to raise money for its, its key charity. Yeah, it's a tough challenge. It needs to be a tough challenge for people to be able to raise a decent amount of money. So it's a 24-hour ride out of Cheltenham starting at midday on the 16th of July. So you ride for the 24 hours as a team, which means you have two riding and two resting. So you're not riding for the full 24 hours, but obviously you're going to go out, you're going to do a couple of laps, you're going to come back in, rest, and then you've got to get the legs going again when your teammate comes back in and tag teams you. But if you haven't got a team, it doesn't matter because we've got lots of individuals who signed up and we'll put people together into a team. So, um, yeah, we hope this is a really accessible uh, event. We want as many people as possible to come and take part um, so it's going to be tough, but I think it's going to be really, really um, like a really exciting day. I think it's going to be an incredible, incredible atmosphere with all of those uh, uh, racing celebs taking part. Just just remind us why this is so important, Gemma. We spoke a lot during the, the pandemic, particularly, and Racing Welfare's profile, thanks to you and to Simone Sear and Dawn Goodfellow and all your team, was raised hugely during that time. Why is it so important now that the foot is kept on the gas? What are your key challenges? Yeah, so, you know, there's 20,000 people working in horse racing and we need to be there to support those people. Uh, the effects of the pandemic continue. Uh, you know, we support people with their mental health, with financial assistance, uh, with advice and guidance, be it on housing or um, uh, employment issues or anything like that. We help people... Um, who just generally are, are are not having the best time. You know, this industry has a lot of injury. So one of our biggest services is our occupational health scheme, helping people get back to work quicker, which is great for employers as well as for the individual. Um, and so even though, uh, you know, we were mostly needed during the pandemic, we helped around four and a half thousand people that year. We're still seeing two and a half thousand people a year now. And not everybody knows what we do. People don't understand all of the services that we have. So we need to continue to push and make sure people know about what we do and continue to help everyone that needs us so that we can contribute to the health of the industry. We raise um, half a million a year from fundraising events, or that's our target. That's what we need to raise, half a million a year from fundraising events. So it's things like the bike ride, which actually will hopefully be our biggest fundraiser, where we need people to come along, join in, have a great time, but you know, raise those vital funds so that we continue to deliver the services that we do. Uh, Gemma, um, thank you very much. I think, um, Dave, you wanted to... Yeah, Gemma, I just wanted to... Um make a plea really uh, not only if you do a cycling thing in future can you stage it in the fence for those of us who don't <laughs> like going up hills um, that would see um, me the um just you know all of us i'm sure uh, are thankful for what racing welfare does and uh, it's a charity that that um we all try and support as much as we can but I, i've i've spoken to people from racing welfare over the last couple of years about calendars and diaries and stuff at Christmas which I've I've always received the answer that that's the IJF's territory and that racing welfare don't want to uh, impinge on it and I, I think that's a very strange thing and I, I, I just my plea would be for 2022 can you look at that because it's obviously it, it would obviously bring the charity considerable revenue 
And I mean, there's not one animal charity, for example. Uh, I, I don't, I'm sure that Animal Aid produce things at Christmas, whether um, the RSPCA does or not. And that's just something, it's, it's completely off the beaten track as, as regards um, the racing welfare cycle. But I thought it was just something that was worth mentioning. I know, I know this is something that you are passionate about. Um, I, I think what we do try to do, you know, there's obviously a number of charities in racing. I used to work for one of them, the British Racing School. Um, and uh, we all have our strengths and we all have our areas of, of, that we focus our energy on. And we haven't in the past focused our energy on that. Uh, the other, some of the other charities do. Um, and y there is an element of... Um, competition when you're selling something because you know people will buy you know Peter O'Sullivan cards or they'll buy IGF cards or um, and so at the moment we focus a lot of energy on our events um, and we've got a big events team and so we can only do so much with the with the people that we have and we do a lot of events in the back end of the year so running into Christmas um, uh, the team are pretty stretched so Sounds like a no. <laughs> it, it, it's definitely something we keep reviewing. We review everything we do all the time. You know, every event we do, we review and see the amount of resource that went in, the amount of cost that went in. Was it worth it? Um, and so we, it's it's always under review. And we love that you contact us each year to talk about it because it makes us feel wanted. It makes us feel that you want to support us, which is great. And uh, we we absolutely need and want racing welfare. Uh, Gemma, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Gemma Waterhouse, the Chief Operating Officer of Racing Welfare. Uh, and you, Eve, would be absolutely in the right position to understand the need for a charity like this to support racing's entire workforce. Absolutely. It's, um, they do a brilliant job. They're really good. Um, we, we've got in touch with them a few times over various issues. We'll help with staff and things. And they are just so good. Um, they're very broad-based and they will help anyone in the industry. Yeah, so it's, it's not simply someone who is in deep despair. It is all sorts of yeah. kind of micro-staffing issues, yeah. issues with financial advice, all sorts of things that just contribute to the people's general well-being. Absolutely, and then uh, they've been helping out with the sort of cost of living. I think, you know, when um, staff have kids going back to school, they'll mm -hmm. sort of give them a grant to help out with um, uh, uniform, cost of uniforms, cost of heating for people who can't afford it. Um, you know, they're, they're brilliant. Post-pandemic, well, post-pandemic, as we emerge back to normality, how are you finding uh, staffing now, sort of post-pandemic, post-Brexit? I think it's one of our biggest issues. It's always been difficult. We talked about it on this programme yeah, before. Yeah. Are you it's, finding it harder now? I really now? find it hard. And I have accommodation on site. And uh, I, I'm always to at least two members of staff short, which is you, you can cope until you have holidays and things like that which everyone has to have or someone's off sick and it just it puts extra stress on on everyone um and i think it's a great job and it's pretty well paid now um you know for stable most stable staff get at least about twenty five thousand pounds a year um ours get free accommodation with it it's a pretty and it's a lovely job if you like working outside it's a great job and i can't understand how we can't get more staff how I think we need to help. We've got to sometimes how work out how to filter them into the racing schools to get them out the other end. Um, whether we need people going round schools and promoting it uh, somehow. Um, and I have quite a lot of kids come from our local schools and start with me and then go off to the racing school. And then we try, is that quite we a nice way of doing it? It's to great, get a little bit of experience yeah, with you, yeah, then yeah. Yeah, and I. But I think we all need to be doing more of that.
is that should that maybe be a, a formalized program then where the racing schools say okay spend a bit of time there then come or, or is that I don't in know already? I don't know I don't know how to do it I mean it's, it's a never-ending problem because it's, we're not the only industry that's struggling I mean you look at hospitality um, anyone you speak to all, I speak to all my own so yes no we're struggling for staff everyone is struggling for staff and I just don't quite understand where all the staff everywhere has gone um, where are you off to today or have you managed to um, I have a runner at Salisbury and I probably will be going there. Okay, if you make it in time. Um, how hopeful are you of your runner at Salisbury? It's a very hot maiden, I found. He's first time out, and I've m probably found the hottest maiden of the year, but, you know, he'll, he'll run nicely. We are now going to talk to the man who's called time on his career, and it has been a great career, particularly um, in its last kind of third since uh, since sort of 2015 onwards. Uh, Robbie Power uh, has retired this week. Super-powered, lost in translation, wins the best fair chase. Finally, John, he's holding the ball under Robbie Power and wins the Gold Cup. Magic days and Robbie Power is surfing again from Manchester. Magic days has beaten the ball up. A hugely popular figure, uh, an enduring one in the Irish uh, weighing room, and this week called time on on what has been a, a fantastic few years with so many Grade One successes. That memorable uh, treble in 2017 on Sizing John of Leopardstown, Cheltenham, and Punchestown, but so much more besides. Um, Robbie Power, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? Uh, very well. Um, great to chat to you. Uh, how do you feel now, with a, a day or so for the for the dust to settle? How how did you feel when you when you woke up this morning? Um, it's been a great, huge relief, you know, because I've known for a while that um, I was going to go at the end of this season, and just to get the weight off my shoulders and to say it publicly that I was um, retired, that was um, a huge relief. How big a part of you needed to come back from your latest and most serious um, injury? A huge part of me. Um, I think every bit of me. I I remember lying on the ground in Chamorro that day when I fractured my hip, and I just thought to myself, "I'm getting too old for this." And but I didn't want to go out lying on the ground in the back of a hurdle in Chamorro. Uh, so I fought hard to get back. I had so much help from from so many good people to get me back. And um, yeah, that was always the plan when I when I got back that I, I would go to the end of the season because. The pain never got any easier. I thought it would, but it never did. Uh, in my hip, I got my hip injected and things like that, but it never, it never got to a comfortable stage. Throughout your career, how important was it for you to have goals like that? Because you're clearly planning that out quite a long way in advance. Yeah, I, I never set myself too many goals uh, throughout my riding career. I always tried to get on the best horses and... and I'd never, I was never ever going to be champion jockey or things like that. But um, I suppose I pushed myself physically as as much as I could, especially the older I got, because the older you get physically, you have to to work harder and harder. And um, yeah, I was pretty tough on myself um, physically more than anything else. Was there ever a point in your career where you felt that everything was moving swimmingly and smoothly for you, or was it always a case of? Pushing for the next target, grafting—you know—really trying to 
to take yourself to places where you might naturally not have gone? Yeah, I, I suppose racing is a great leveller and you can never get too complacent in racing. And even back in 2017, when things, everything you sat on turned to gold, you know, with so much success that season. But you just have to keep your feet on the ground and keep pushing hard. And, um, yeah, that's what I did. And then, unfortunately, I got a few injuries in the last couple of years that just curtailed things a little bit. But, um, no, I don't think I ever got complacent about it anyway. I was always pushing for, for the next for the next big day. And, of course, 2017, you mentioned that. I mean, that came straight off the back of what was a, a really nasty incident with your eye and, and your cheekbone in in 2016 and actually if, if anything could completely have derailed you it might just have been that did that make what followed all the sweeter oh most definitely yeah but I think that that injury with my eye was probably the most frightening of the whole lot because I couldn't fix it I'd been to see so many specialists and they couldn't fix it um, and eventually went to see a man called uh, Mr Fitzpatrick in uh, in Dublin and he was the one who come up with the idea of putting the prism in the in the goggles so that I could um, get rid of the double vision. And, yeah, other than that, I, I would have had to retire. I remember riding in Galway one, or in Gorham Park one day. I got a fall at the last, and I was sitting beside Ruby in the way room, and he came back in, and he says, if you don't stop, I'm going to ring your wife, get this problem sorted. So I had to get on to... Um, Adrian McGoldrick was the chief medical officer at the time, gone to Adrian, and we made a few calls and we got to see Mr Fitzpatrick and, yeah, he was the one to put the prism in the goggle and once I got that then um, never looked back, thank God. And 2017, as you said, was just a just a dream year, particularly particularly with sizing John and those three big races and our Duke, of course, in the, in the Irish National uh, as well. That, if you were to look back on one period, would that definitively be the, the one that you you enjoyed the most as well as being the most successful? Almost definitely. I mean, 2017 opened more doors for me as well. Um, after I won the Gold Cup on, on Sizing John, the late Alan Potts wanted me as his retained rider to ride all his horses, which meant going over to England to Tizards. Um, and that year in Aintree, we had four, four winners, three grade one winners, all for Tizards. And that opened the door then for the next couple of seasons to, to ride some some huge winners for them. We had a lot of success with the Tizards and, and enjoyed my time in England flying back and forward. Tell me a little bit about your, your relationship with, with Jessica Harrington. It's been a, an enduring one. It's really, really stood the test of time. What is it about you and her that has clicked and worked so well, do you think? Um, I don't know. She's a fantastic woman to work for. Um, very straight. We'll tell you what she's thinking. Um, if she's something to say, she'll say it. Um, there's no doubt about that. And But very straightforward to ride for. Never gave me instructions. We talked about a race. Um, and she just asked you what you want to do and, and that there. So she was a fantastic woman to ride for. And when something went wrong, Jessie understood horses and understood racing more than most people. And when something went wrong, she didn't drag it on for days and days. It was done and dusted, forgotten about. I remember when Oscar as well stumbled at the back of the last hurdle in the... Um, well, I can't remember what it was called, in the Sunline's hurdle back in them days. And he just stumbled at the back of the last, probably going to win. And she just said to me, go in, give yourself a shake, come out and you win the RSA. And that's exactly what happened. You know, that was the sort of woman she was. She was very, very straight to, to ride for and, and didn't dwell on the, on the bad days too much. She just forgot about it and moved on to the next day. Yeah, and the horse you, I was going to say the horse you then won the RSA on was Boston's Angel, who was a, a pretty unlikely hero on paper. So to be filling you with all that confidence was obviously absolutely crucial.
Yeah, it, it was, yeah, I suppose. And, but he was a true grade one winner coming into that race. And obviously, I think time for Rupert was the one of the English bankers of the week. Um, he didn't turn up on the day. But yeah, Boston's Angel was a, a tough, gritty horse. He never did anything uh, flashy, but he always got the job done. Um, this season has obviously been, as you say, incredibly challenging for you, for you physically. Um, but was it crucial for you to, to get to Punchestown, to get to the very end? Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, um, if Manella Indo had won the Gold Cup in Cheltenham, I probably would have gone out then. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't. After he retired, stormed up the hill and he finished second. And flying home from Cheltenham that evening, I, I knew that Punchestown, I'd, I'd push out to Punchestown and get there and, well, hopefully get there. And thankfully, I did. Um, I think I said to my wife about two weeks before Punchestown that, yeah, this was going to be the end. Whatever happened, win, lose, or draw, that I couldn't face into another season. So, um, whatever happened in Punchestown, that was not the end. We're just going to have a look at, at magic days now. There are ways to bow out and there are ways to bow out, aren't there? Yeah, exactly. She was a, a great way to bow out. I mean, a, a front-running two-mile chaser and a jump like she did um, made me look good on one of my last rides. It was it was really enjoyable. I got a great buzz out of that. And, um, to ride two winners in Punchestown for the week and one for Jesse and one for Rob Corr was uh, was perfect. You know that was um, couldn't have ridden for two two winners for two better people in my last couple week. week. Uh, and Robbie, what's the what's the immediate future hold for you now? Uh, I'm going to take it easy for a month or so. Um, I'm actually going to badminton Australia next week. My sister's competing there, so um, family's going over there for uh, for a few days next week. I'm going to go on holidays in June and then come back. I've got a good yard at home I've a gallop and, and all that so I'm going to do a bit of pre-training and, and things like that but um, I'd love to work with young horses as well schooling and things like that which is something I've always enjoyed is, is teaching horses how to jump so I'm definitely going to do a bit of that and, and keep the door open for whatever comes around you know hopefully someone somewhere along the line will give me a job uh, I think you'll be a man very much in demand as you as you then come to the, the end of this career as you, as you as you draw it to a close do you look back on it thinking I couldn't have had it any other way. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way, irrespective of all the highs and lows on the road. Oh, yeah. Look, when, when you're a, a jump jockey, there's going to be highs and lows. And when I started off back in 2001, if someone had said to me, you're going to win all these races, I would have said you're absolutely mad, you know, that um, to win a half of what I'd won would have been, would have been great. Um, I rode over 660 winners, 31 grade one winners, and a Gold Cup and a Grand National there are two races that every jockey wants to win and thankfully they're both on my CV so yeah I look back at it with, with huge memories and, and enjoyed every every minute of it Yeah I think if if every jockey had that kind of percentage of grade one winners to winners that that conversion rate I think they'd be very happy Yeah absolutely you know, and I've been so lucky through my career to ride for some brilliant people some of the best trainers in the business and, and some great owners and I've sat in so many good horses, the likes of Sizen John, Super Sunday, Big Zeb, Lost in Translation, um, Fox Norton. It's just been such a thrill the whole way through. Prize money, racecourse attendance, conduct on racecourses, fixtures and funding, the structure of British racing. Each and every day, this is in the intray of RCA Chief Executive, Racecourse Association Chief Executive David Armstrong, who's with me now. And it's not getting any quieter for you, is it? No, I think the agenda just changes. We obviously had a period of time when 
everything COVID related and the return of spectators was the mm. priority. Now we're back in pretty much business as usual and we're getting on with the day job, but it certainly doesn't get any quieter. Are spectators coming back in the numbers you'd hoped? At the moment, yes, they are. We've actually seen some very encouraging signs around particularly major events. Mm. Great crowds at Cheltenham, Aintree, a good day yesterday at Newmarket, for example. Uh, a little less consistent around other days. So some courses are doing well, others not quite so well, and we're trying to understand why some of those people aren't coming back yet. What's your hunch? What do you think? I think it's probably a couple of things. I mean, there's definitely an element of it is uh, financial, mm -hmm. you know, with the increasing cost of living for everyone, disposable income. It's just that little bit tougher, and people are tightening their belts. I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's some people still a little nervous about coming back to major events after, after COVID, um, and whether that'll be a permanent thing or a temporary thing we're trying to understand now. So I think there's a few factors in there. But other sports are the same. Other sports are facing the same challenges about spectator levels. Probably best describe them as, as inconsistent as well. Are we moving, and we've talked about this a little bit before, are we moving to a situation now where if you've got a Cheltenham or an Aintree, you're going to do great. But the, the sort of mezzanine level fixtures are going to have to fight like hell for every person who walks through that gate. Yes, no, they are. And of course, their competitors are not particularly, you know, necessarily racing or even other sports. It can be Netflix. The sofa is mm. often our biggest competitor. Um, and we need to encourage people to come back to racing if they've been before. And people who are new to come to racing uh, should find the next six months very exciting across our racing program. So when you hear, for example, people not being let into enclosures because they're wearing the wrong clothes, and I don't want to simply pick on the Sandown example last week because this has happened across all sorts of race courses. When you hear of extortionate admission prices for a quiet, low-key day on a Monday, um, you must be thinking to yourself, we're not doing enough here, are we, to make this sport accessible? Well, we shouldn't make it hard for people. That's the, that's the first thing, Nick. If it's about dress codes or pricing, individual race courses need to make those decisions for themselves. But they all want to make mm. sure that their spectator numbers are healthy. So they've got to make the right decisions. And you know, from time to time, if we need to change a dress code or change a pricing strategy, then we should. Yeah, and can you intervene in that sense or not? No, I mean... Can I, you I, guide? Can you guide? Can you say, look, as chief exec of your body, I feel that we need some kind of overarching racing strategy here to make sure that this is as appealing as possible? Not so much in that there are, there are things going on in terms of bringing people to the race course, we'll come to in a minute. But in terms of things like pricing strategy, each race course will make its own decisions on that based on its knowledge of its local market. Mm -hmm. And they'll have more knowledge of that local market than I ever could. So they're best placed to make that decision. But something that we are doing that's very uh, interesting in the coming months is through Great British Racing, GBR, we're launching what's going to be a consideration campaign. And by that, I mean trying to encourage people to come racing who have considered coming racing before but aren't really yet race goers or not regular race goers. And we're going to be targeting that on Q3 of this year, uh, so July through September. And that's intended to reach new audiences and bring new people to the race course. And that's going to be uh, supported by uh, Great British Racing, as I say, and part funded by the Levy Board. How do you find them? How do you find the people who've considered going racing but haven't gone racing yet? Well, you, you typically find them through online channels, through social media, through you know, careful research that we do from like GBR do all year round to understand people that you know, may or may not be interested in attending all sports events. Is this algorithmic targeting? A little bit, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if somebody, so I'm sitting here with my, my phone here, if I started talking about basketball, but I've never been to a professional basketball game, suddenly the basketball society would be 
or whatever it is, would be <laughs> would would be would be bombarding me on Facebook with uh, with messages for you know, come to this fixture. Um, sort of yes, although not we'll bombarding. Ch- we'll, we'll try it at the end to see <laughs> if it's work. See, see if you come to a basketball game. Um, I think bombarding sort of implies that you're going to be getting all this unwanted messaging, and that's not what it's about. It's about giving people the opportunity to come racing who have an interest in sport, mm-hmm. probably an interest in horses, probably an interest in racing, and just presenting them with that opportunity and communicating with them to encourage them to try a day at the races. Okay. Um, is this something that you have tried before in any shape or form? Is this, is this an extension of initiative that has already, already taken place, or is this it's entirely a sort of follow fresh? Up. What we were doing, we were planning to launch this actually in the summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. And, of course, COVID got in the way, so it, it never happened. And we're now we're recycling the idea two years later. And what it was intended to be was an extension of what was then the under-18s go free campaign. So what you were trying to do is to get families, kids under 18, to be interested in racing and to come that way. This time we're expanding it. So there will still be a message toward aimed at the under 18 year old, but now it's at a wider range of people saying, "Come racing, give it a try." Oh, do you think there should ever be a dress code at a race course apart from, say, Royal Ascot and the Derby? That's a good question. Um, I don't. I don't think there should be a dress code as such that you end up having something you you enforce so strictly. I think you, you'll see it every time you go racing. People love dressing up when they come racing. Mm. It's one of those. It's a real tradition of racing that we should be very proud of. At, at many fixtures, people will you know, will dress in a way that they might not normally dress anyway. To come racing, it's a thing. It's a real valuable asset in our sport is the fact that people dress up. And we don't want to discourage that either because so many people, when they come to the races, they come relatively infrequently. They dress up, they get a hat, they do whatever they're going to do, and it's a big day out. Yeah, uh, but you, you think we shouldn't have dress codes? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far. I mean, you mentioned things like Royal Ascot. Yeah, that's what I, I say, yeah. accepted them, because yeah. we know that's I think you need a bit to, special. Yeah. But. I would, I would, the phrase dress code implies that you're almost going to be barred or sanctioned or something if you don't follow the dress code. So I might find a different way to express it. Would you prefer a guide? Yes. But not one that has to be adhered to? You wouldn't be throwing people out on the basis of what they're wearing? Well, I think we've got to work hard to get people to come racing. Mm. So we shouldn't make it hard for them by you know, not letting them in when they do come. Um, so I, I wouldn't be. I'd be very careful about doing that. So would you? As I go back to my original point, would you find it quite embarrassing when you read a story about racecourses not allowing, uh, turning people away? Well, I think the incident at Sandown is worth. You know, I haven't gone through all the detail of that mm. with with Jockey Club to understand exactly what happened. Um, it, it creates the wrong headline. Of mm-hmm. course, it does. It makes it sound as though racing is putting up barriers mm-hmm. to people coming, and actually, we're not. Um, what, do you, what can you do about the uh, continued bad behaviour on race courses and the fighting, which has become a, a real issue and a real problem? It has, but it is still you know, an isolated exception when it does occur. Um, and we've but quite a lot of isolated exceptions. Well, there, I mean, there are incidents that, you know, that have happened, and, and actually a well, slight I'll, increase... I'll put, I'll put it to you like this, David. Yesterday, we were all um, saying how fantastic the racing was at, at Newmarket and what a lovely atmosphere it was, and it was quite a high-octane... Quite part party atmosphere towards the end, mm-hmm. and but we were all saying how lovely it was, and we also said all said to each other in some surprise, oh, and there was no no obvious fighting either, as though that was oh great there was there was no fighting yesterday, that, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Yes, it is, and, and it is about isolated incidents, and and since the end of lockdown, there probably have been more isolated mm. incidents mm. than perhaps there were before, and I think other parts of society have seen the same thing. There was a report this week published, I saw in one newspaper, talking about increased violence outside pubs and nightclubs. 
since the end of you know since the end of lockdown. Not a huge increase, but an increase nevertheless. And it's it's something we have to be wary of. And that we we adopt a very you know a very strict policy regarding uh, any incidents on the race course. We 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 work hard to reduce the incidence of people drinking too much yeah. uh, and those sorts of things. And we, we continue to strive to do that. Can you ever eliminate the risk of isolated incidents? No, you can't. Uh, but you can work pretty hard to reduce the incidence of, of fighting on, on race courses and, and at any sporting venue, can't yes. you? Do, don't you need a, a greater police presence and the police who are actually prepared to do something about it? Well, I think each, uh, each sporting event, each race day, the racecourse itself will make a decision about what level of policing support it wants. Mm-hmm. And that'll be in conversation with its local police authority, other, others like the safety advisory group of the racecourse. And they'll make a decision about the level of police presence they want on the, mm-hmm. the racecourse to act as a deterrent quite often. And that doesn't always mean that you'll, you'll choose to bring police onto the racecourse. The racecourse environment is typically very convivial, very friendly. It's, n- it's a very low-risk environment from a police point of view. So you know, we have to be careful not to over-police and, and put people off for that reason. So a race course will look at what's the risk of a particular day and then make a decision about what level of policing it wants, request that from the local police authority and put it in place. Tell me, um, what are, uh, say, private security allowed to do when a fight breaks out? Because a lot of people will say, right, well, there's a fight, the, private, the security won't really do an awful lot. What are they allowed to do? Uh, their powers presumably don't extend as far as police officers does. No, they don't, and, and, they ha- and they're very wary of that in terms of what their powers are. And there's, there's a, a, a categorization of powers between you know, the certain people will have and others won't. By and large, most people that are on a race course as a private security firm can't actually physically intervene in, in an incident if it mm. happens. So, that so they're a little bit pointless. Well... It's, it depends on how you, you want to, to manage your race day. If you want to... They're uh, more like marshals than security guards, aren't they? Possibly, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, then you, you do need some backup policing. Well, it depends on the race day. I mean, you mentioned you know, a, a highly charged day at Newmarket. It might be a day where you might choose to have... You know, you'd look at the police presence mm-hmm. and you might increase it. Other race days where incidents break out, you'd probably look at that and think that's always going to be a low-risk day. We probably wouldn't police that one. Uh, in, in a higher sense. So it's, it's individual decisions. Let's talk about prize money. It was announced this week there would be record prize money mm-hmm. for 2022. The prize money in 2023 is going to go down, isn't it, after that? Well, not necessarily, but there's a lot of pressure on 2023. Um, in 2022, we've got the benefit of additional levy board funding. Mm-hmm. We've got the benefit of the winter support package that we got from um, DCMS during covid and that's flowing through into... And that was 40 mil, was it? The, the uh, it, into, it was actually 21 million. 21 million. 21 and a half million. Um, of which about seven and a half has gone directly into prize money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that has an impact because that stops. And where's the rest gone? Part of it's gone into integrity costs. Part of it's gone into uh, further CapEx funding from the levy board. So it's gone into different things. So cap, capital expenditure on sort of maintaining race courses, yeah, basically. and various projects that the levy board's involved with. It's just the levy board general spending. Okay. So that, um, that means that uh, you've got risks into the 2023 prize money number. The other thing we have to be wary of is, of course, that the levy board is continuing to use its reserves to fund prize money this year. It'll probably not be able to do that forever. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, the levy board funding into prize money could also go down in 2023.
So 2023, it is looking very likely, unless racing pulls its finger out in an extraordinary fashion, prize money in 2023 will be lower than prize money in 2022. That's well, a would you say that's a strong likelihood? Um, I wouldn't say a strong likelihood, but it's definitely possible. And the, and the reason why it might not be, of course, is that race courses can choose to fill those gaps if they can with executive contribution, and many will, I, I think, will do so.